0: All right, let's have a quick prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for this cold morning. The cold mornings, the warm mornings you send them all. We thank you for them. In him we live, we move, and exist, and have our being. You've given us our days of habitation. You have ordained the day that we will even die. And in this we rejoice. For, O oh Lord, our life is in your hands, and you know all our ways and all of our life. We thank you. We praise you. Feed us by your word. Bring manna from heaven. May the Spirit of God have his way. And teach us about Christ and Him crucified. Amen. Amen. Alright, Romans, uh, Romans 5. one through 5 I kind of wish it were Romans 9. We'd go to town on that one. <laughs> oh, only Reform people get that excited about Romans 9. You know what I mean? <laughs> Our Armenian brothers here, just <laughs> yeah, in a different way. Yeah. Uh, Romans 5 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulation, knowing that our tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. Paul's understanding of the gospel and his teaching of it to the Romans is twofold. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God through Christ. It saves those who believe and condemns those who do not. Chapters 1-3 through three explicitly describes man's universal depravity and the laws condemning power over sin. Christ's entrance into the world manifested the perfect righteous living the law demands. Therefore, man's internal and external sin is made more sinful by Christ's demonstration of what righteousness really looks like in human flesh. In chapter 4, Paul introduces to us what a righteousness by faith looks like and he uses Abraham as an example. Abraham is no different than you or I. If God sees me as a depraved sinner... The question is, how can a man be just before God? The answer from Paul is believe in God's promise just as Abraham did, and God would declare you righteous on the basis of faith in Christ. And he would declare you righteous on that basis and of his atoning work. This is the gospel of grace Paul is teaching to the Romans. Romans 4.17 says, He gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Sarah's conception of Isaac fulfilled the promise God made to him to be a father of many nations. As God gave life to Abraham and Sarah's bodies, God's righteousness was given to them through their faith in God's power alone. Abraham and Sarah were literally, according to Romans 5.6, although it's specifically speaking to you and I and to the Romans, Abraham was in the same circumstance. He was helpless to conceive a child, both him and Sarah. As any parent would be finding out that a barren woman is pregnant, they would truly be caused to praise unto God. And this is the backdrop to today's study in Romans 5, 1-5. For like Abraham and Sarah, we were depraved, destitute, and distant from God. Then God gave life to our bodies and souls and called into being which did not exist. Life in Christ. Glory to God for the impossible. Glory to the Son who gave us life. And glory to the Spirit who gives the new birth. And therefore, what I would like to propose to you in these few verses, verses 1-5, through five, are three things. First, justification creates peace. Secondly, Christ introduces us to the grace of God and justification explains that grace. And thirdly, justification prepares us for suffering. Which, by the way, if we were on the subject in the context of suffering, I would say if we were here for two hours talking about that subject of suffering and tribulation and trouble, we would not put justification as an element for us to be able to understand and to accept that suffering. But Paul does. Let me bring to your attention a few things here. When Paul says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God, he's, usually saying, he's basically saying to most Gentiles and some Jewish Christians in Rome, Shalom. Shalom. Peace to you. Which, by the way, from the Jewish perspective, is that the, the greatest goal and desire of a Jew to be able to be someone who could stand in the presence of a thrice-holy God and live. Shalom. Isaiah says in chapter thirty-two, seventeen through 18 the fruit of righteousness will be peace. The Jews understood what righteousness was. They just took it too far, thinking that the law was the thing that was going to grant them and give them, through their obedience to God, that righteousness. And they, you could say in a certain sense, historically skipped over the whole teaching. The whole teaching of believing upon the promise that God gave Abraham and God imputing, putting on the account the righteousness of God, what theologians call a foreign righteousness. It is not your own. It is God's alone. And therefore, it's a gift. And this is how people are saved. By the gift of the gospel of grace by God. That's what the gospel is. And we shouldn't be surprised in Galatians 3, we learn that God was preaching beforehand the gospel to Abraham when he says, I will make your seed as a promise to give you and be making you a father of many nations. So when we look at the subject matter of justification in the book of Romans, just follow along with me six things that Paul brings out for us. In Romans 8.33, you don't have to go there, God alone justifies God alone. The elephant in the room for the lost is this. They may not put it so legally, so articulately, but it is this. How can a man be just in the presence of a holy God? How can man survive the wrath of God? How can he accomplish this? Jesus Absolutely. The sadness about a world today. And by the way, let's, let's not isolate what we're going through. Because if you're over the age of 50, you've witnessed the transition of a morally-minded world to an amoral world. And now we're in a place where they say, God who? Right? But our culture is really no different than the Greek culture and the Roman culture of the day of the first century. So let us not so isolate ourselves thinking that we are unique and in experiencing this godless society. But the world... In this godless society, is not asking the question any longer. I witnessed the gospel to a college student probably about 10, 15 years ago. He'd never heard the word sin, and he asked me what its definition was. I literally gave him a track by Al Martin. I was floored he read it. He had nothing but ego. He was trouble on a research, research farm where I worked. It was, I mean, and I was floored that he respected my presentation of the gospel enough to read it. But he had no, not only connotation, but he had no reference point, historical reference point, in his short years of life to actually say, I know what sin is. No one told him about it. His parents did, and the culture didn't. And that's about 15 years ago. But we have to say back to the world what Paul says in Romans 8.33, God alone justifies
1: yeah. in the eyes of the culture today sin is speaking forth the things of the gospel mm. presenting the gospel is sin in the way the culture would define sin if they it could right. it's amazing
0: right God alone justifies that's the first perspective that Paul brings about you can't do it yourself you can't earn it if you think you can earn it then God says your wages are death simply your wages are death if you think you can earn it justification and this is what Paul went through in chapter 4. Justification is a gift of the grace of God granted to Abraham through a promise. That's what makes it so important for us to understand theologically. The promise came before the law. The promise is a promise. I will give you a gift. Yeah?
1: If you mistakenly believe that you can be saved by your works, mm-hmm. but have but believe in Jesus as well and have a heart for Christ and have faith, would that supersede the concept that the mental understanding that you can be saved? It's an excellent
0: point. I don't want to get too deep into it, but I will answer your question. I remember when I was first saved. First thing came out of my mouth. And I mean, it was a miraculous saving. Everyone's experience is different. Mine was, I'm reading the Bible, an old Gideon's Bible. It's mm-hmm. a pocket Bible. It's in my bed for two weeks. I didn't understand a thing. And then I go like this. And I said, Lord, this is all true. That's my experience. And nearly short after, talking to another, I think maybe Christian, going to a dead church, but we are having a conversation. I said, I wonder what God saw in me when he saved me.
1: <laughs> Your glasses.
0: Not much. Not <laughs> much.
2: <laughs> and my wife is still repeating, re- repeating that refrain today. Not much.
0: That's Romans one through three, chapters one through three. God saw nothing in you. It's a gift, and He justifies alone. And Romans five nine were justified solely through His blood. This this statement by Paul in 5.9 opens up the door to the whole doctrine of the atonement. You can't talk about justification without the atonement. Mm -hmm. and You can't talk about the atonement without the fruits of justification. On the other hand, we have to be, as teachers, we're restricted to context. We don't want to teaching what someone else is going to get next week on top of the fact that we don't want to get and start jumping ahead too far when Paul is laying out his arguments of presenting the gospel. So suffice it to say for today at least we're justified through his blood by a God and human sacrifice spilling the life blood of God for the remission of sin. Thirdly, Romans 5.16. Justification is a gift through the completed work of Christ. It's a gift. I already mentioned that. Romans 5.18. Boy, justification is life. In one sense, I'm not surprised that when Paul speaks of Romans about... Basically, he says... And theologians disagree on this. We even talked to Pat last week and... He stirred up a hornet's nest, of course, and, you know, that's what Pat always does. (laughs) But he says in Romans 17, he calls into being that which does not exist. The direct context is absolutely, is absolutely, first and foremost, dead womb and dead man in terms of the ability to procreate. Absolutely. On the other hand, boy, I just read Doug Moo this morning. He goes into the culture, the Judea culture of the time, and goes to First Samuel chapter two, and he starts talking about the 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 correlation between a woman's barrenness, and and the section is Hannah, and her song, and and, and uh, Hannah's barrenness in relationship to literally God bring, being sovereign over life and death and he brings alive, and he also kills. So in the Jewish mind, there is this association with the idea of God's sovereignty. He brings ex nihilo, into being out of nothing creation. But by the way, in resurrection, out of nothing, a dead corpse still laying in the ground, out of nothing, he brings a resurrected body. Mm. And these are allusions that theologians talk about. And I believe in those illusions. I think one of the other illusions is Romans 4 bringing into here, and I think it may be part of the mindset of Paul in relationship bringing up the subject of justification, is the fact that the new birth is bringing something out of nothing.
2: <laughs>
0: Romans 3.28 says, Just genuine justification is through faith alone. This ties in with the doctrine of it being a gift. And it's not of works, lest any man should boast. Romans 8.30 and finally God does his justifying work only upon the elect now we get into the atonement all over again we start asking the question is this a penal substitution for the elect of God alone and then what happens to the rest of the world I'm not going to discuss that with you today because that's not the context but you can't talk about justification without atonement atonement without justification and all the things that are wrapped around what it means for God to impute His righteousness to you as a sovereign gift of the grace of God to a person at the moment they're born again. Let me ask you a question. In fact, actually, Doug Moose says this, this grace from our justification is a constant state of grace. Remember, when you were born again and justified... And God imputed a foreign righteousness of God himself, imputed in this mysterious union with Christ. You're now in a constant state of grace. At no time ever, after that moment of conversion, can you say, God's love has left you. Ever. Ever. That should stir our hearts. And that should keep us, by the way, in the love of God, Which is interesting, because actually when Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God, you say, how do I do that? You understand the truths of God about the depths of His love from a doctrinal perspective. It's the reason why Paul says, it's no problem for me to preach the gospel back to you. And people say, well, I thought He's going to do the John 3.16 type of thing. No. He's going to doctrinally lay out for us what justification is and what the love of God looks like doctrinally (coughs) and that is the very thing that will keep you in the love of God truth truth will keep you in the love of God if God is just in justifier according to Romans 3.26 of course he is and his work in justification is a sovereign work then we must be able to define what it is that Paul tells us and what it does Interesting here. Paul when you read about what Paul says about justification in Romans, he does not give us a succinct definition of justification. He gives us what justification looks like. So, basically, he tells us we're innocent because Christ is God is just and Christ is just in the justifier and he satisfies the very wrath of God on the cross. And his blood justifies us and gives us peace. And he gives you a shalom of life. It is free grace given by the gospel of grace is another theological way to describe this gift from God. The theological dictionary says it's a reckoning or accounting of righteousness. God declaring a sinful person to be just on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. Carl Brogi loves to put it this way I uh, heard him years ago old acquaintance to Gary George by the way um, he's from South Carolina he says God has put us in a right standing through, our justi- through his justifying work at one point you are dead in trespasses and sin you were let's use a contemporary phrase dead men walking and then he justifies you through the blood of Christ and now you're alive in Christ. Your standing before God has changed. And by the way, that's what you have to do when you preach the gospel to the world. We're telling you at this moment, right now, you are condemned under God and His wrath. The law condemns you. That's the reason why Paul talked about it in Romans chapter 2. The Jew had special revelation and they are accountable based upon the very revelatory words of that special revelation of the law to the conscience. The Gentiles don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card. They have a law of conscience. For by the nature of the very fact that when you do and examine what is right or wrong in your conscience to live every day, you demonstrate the work of the law in you already. That's near a quote at mm-hmm. that end. therefore Romans 5 gives us the way we are just before God faith in Christ and the fruit of that relationship is peace in the presence of God that's what he's done someone had their hand up I apologize Tony? I was going to
1: say just um, very quick free grace from our point of view and much much costly grace
2: from God's point
0: of view absolutely absolutely and when we're born again we realize how costly it was the more we learn about God the more costly it's the reason why Paul in Romans talks about in Romans 8 I think it is the depth and the width Mm. and the height of the love of God it's immeasurable it goes beyond our understanding it's the reason why it's kept theologians busy for 2,000 years (laughs) right?
2: it's a great way to put it Hmm.
0: I've always said it this way. The gospel is so simple to save the most ignorant and simple child and is the most profound to save the most wise man who thinks he's more than he is. Secondly, number two, Christ introduces us to the grace of God and justification explains that grace. Look at how he words it here. Let's read verses 1 and 2 of Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, that's Christ, also we have obtained our introduction, that's the NAS, the word, it could be also approach. I think it's, it's uh, appealing to our ability to now approach God when before we could not. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. When you were first saved, God introduced you to grace. You knew nothing about grace, did you? Absolutely nothing about grace. In fact, you were living a law of lawlessness. You knew nothing about grace. Paul Paul, uh, Paul compares idolatry with lawlessness in his epistles. And therefore, we were living a lawless life, we were idolaters, and we knew nothing of grace, absolutely nothing. This grace is so profound. Paul speaks of the individual, the depraved person, in Romans 3:23 is saying, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet now when you're saved, what does he say? Your introduction to this case is now allowing you to spiritually exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Falling short, and now in the hope of the glory of God. Question. Is justification a feeling, a declaration, a position, or a combination of one, two, or three of those, or two or three of those. Combination. Okay. Explain yourself, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: it's declaration. That's a, a forensic term. Yep. Declared innocent in the court of law. That's right. So we can stand before God completely innocent for uh-huh. anything because of the finished of Christ. Okay. And sorry I forgot uh,
0: is it a declaration a position or a feeling or a combination okay.
2: we're also positionally uh, righteous because, again because of Christ's righteousness that's been imputed into us we are positionally righteous before
0: that's as uh, Carl Brody would say you're right standing in the presence of God now the beauty about the declaration forensically is all the evidence is against you in a court of law you know these cop shows now that they're, they've been in vogue for the last 10 years like CSI and these other ones, right? And, and here's the documented evidence that by the time you get to a court of law you're guilty. By the way, in human emotion human will human intellect human spirit you're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty before you're saved. Did you know that? In a court of law you are condemned. It's the reason why Paul says Christ is the just and the justifier. He has the right, as the God-Man, perfect, fulfilling the law in his life and also in his death, to justify the many. Paul will cover this later on in the book of Romans, right about in the middle of the book. Adam, were condemned through him. Were put on the, what's put on our account is Adam's sin but also was put on our account when we get saved, is, uh, is Christ's righteousness. He is the only one who can justify anyone in the world who places their faith within Him. Mark?
1: Uh, the third word you use was feeling. And I think that the, uh, the declaration and the position uh, generates the feeling of peace. Mm.
2: What?
1: fact is, I think that we have a hard time accepting it because we realize uh, we're, we're sinners, and that's—I uh, think—that's the I think that's the, di- well, that's the difficulty for me is to be. Although I—I I think I uh, experienced a lot more peace with God today, which is one of the things I several years ago mm-hmm. I said, you know, how do I, how do I obtain, how do I, how do I get peace with God? Mm-hmm. And he's—he's uh, he's revealed it that, that, he, that there can be peace
2: mm-hmm. with God see
0: Mark didn't take the bait I did that question on purpose that way I do do it it causes us to think I think more deeply and thank you for Mark for bringing that out because technically doctrinally theologically is not a feeling but if anyone says I'm justified by faith alone by the gift of the grace of God in Christ and they have no experiential feeling following that they may not be saved because if this doesn't cause excitement in the soul of man, then we've got to reassess how we got saved. Amen. But it has nothing Amen. doctrinally to do with it. The peace is the result of being just and declared just in the presence of God. And then some Christians walk around like this all day woe is me I'm suffering is God really even thinking about me today has he left me I haven't felt his presence in a long time am I even a Christian right sometimes we do that in a lifetime of being a Christian
2: right
1: I believe that there's two types of emotions that you're referring that you could be referring to Mm -hmm. the first type is the first emotional feeling that you get uh, and it could be inspired by or motivated by Uh, A preacher, Mm -hmm. can be motivated by music, it's emotional. Mm -hmm. Then you walk out and it's gone. Mm The true feeling of the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit is long lasting Mm -hmm. and exciting. Mm
0: -hmm. You're exactly right, and and this is what faith produces. Not only igniting, you could say, the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit within us by God responding to that faith, a justifying faith alone, but also producing within us the very emotion that responds and the faith that responds to that. I mean, we're called to worship. It would be crazy to think. And, and, and I'll be honest, in the Reformed community, we there are certain churches uh, have been known to... Uh, be very dry you know the, the hyper-Calvinist uh, you know um, they'll come to us if they want to get saved right um, the idea though is that you know there's this disengagement of the emotional aspect of what the gospel does in our life and should do to us to proclaim the gospel I, I, I sat with an Assembly of God pastor on vacation up at the Cape quite a few years ago and um, I was just expressing my evangelistic zeal for the lost in a top of a conversation. And he's staring at me. And I could see that he was staring at me. Joyce was there too, his wife. And he says, I've never met a Calvinist like you. That's a quote. He says, the ones I've met don't have this inward desire and in feeling of responsibility and emotional angst for the lost souls of the world. I'm paraphrasing basically what he was implying in this conversation. Shame on us that that's the case. Mm -hmm. But it begins with understanding exactly what God has done with you and for you in your life and converting you and bringing you peace before a holy God. And then you say, I want other people to experience this peace when God healed my heart. And most of you were probably there. I gave my testimony. I literally went, got an electrical shock to my heart. Denise described it to me as a supernatural defibrillation using the natural electrical system of my heart. And I went from basically being close to death. My doctor's words basically, he's going a stroke or a heart attack at any moment in that two-hour period that night because I had a 24-hour halter monitor on the day before or a couple of days before. No, I'm sorry, a couple of weeks before. And I had that electrical shock. It woke me up. It was still going. And literally, I go like this with my arms. And I'm laying down on my back and I go, I look at my heart. Then I look up. I said, Lord, did you just heal me?
2: <laughs>
0: That's a true story. And what it was is the fact that my heart never, ever, ever felt like that before. And we need to tell the world, you can have a heart that you have never felt before. And God will give you peace as if he arrested a heart that was diseased and to bring you in the presence of God where there's rest in his presence and not fear. Peace. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Last thing. This is the odd one. Justification prepares us for suffering. Now Paul, the way he words it, you have to kind of read into the text a little bit to see what did you get out here? What, where did suffering come from? Tribulation come from out of the blue when you're talking about justification, right? So let's read it in its context. Starting at verse 1. Therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace through the justifying work of Christ, of course, in which we stand and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. No more depraved, no more condemned. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that our tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What in the world does tribulation have to do with the price of tea in China in relationship to when Paul is talking about sanctification, the work of the Spirit of God within you, producing a hope that coincides with a changed character? What's that got to do with tribulation? I'll give you a hint. What happens when you get saved? Do you handle trouble? Just a broad category of trouble. Differently now after being a Christian, after 65 years being a Christian, Michelle, right? 65 years being a Christian? (laughs) I think so, (laughs) (laughs) maybe. And when Michelle was first saved. Do you handle tribulation better now, or I've been a Christian for just about 40 years, and 40 years ago. Hopefully. Hopefully. Now that's a good point because not every Christian's experience is the same, and there are Christians who have you could say have been lazy as a Christian. And the trouble comes along and they just don't get it. I can handle this trouble better, and why am I into a tailspin and I seem to like take years to get out of it, and then another trouble comes along, and then I get back into a tailspin, and I can't get out of the spin, and I'm in trouble again. And then other Christians say, Ooh, I've learned patience. And I have a peace in my soul recognizing that I don't like trouble, but trouble doesn't have power over me as it used to. One's a what attitude, and one. The other is a what attitude. When I first came to this church,
1: a fellow by the name of John Germain in Jamaica, looked at me and he said, you know something, Wally? He said, I can tell you're a Christian, but you've got a rough edge around you.
2: And
0: well, we, we know from which source that came from. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, he was a little blunt. Yes. Yeah, John can be a little blunt. But that was all right, because he was tr- it
1: was correct. And in the past... 10 years that I've been in this church, uh, I've mellowed
0: somewhat. <laughs> somewhat. But the point I'm making here is this. And, 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 and Paulie, you know, Wally, is uh, walking around it. Uh, and he's got the nail on the head here. Paulie, Paulie, yeah. Paulie, want to cry. Yeah,
2: Paulie. Uh, yeah,
0: so, um, one's a mature attitude, and one's a non mature attitude towards your suffering. It's as simple as that. But it comes in the timing of the Holy Spirit working within us to sanctify us. That's all that Paul is talking about here, by the way. Perseverance, I'm sorry, let me reread it. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character. Proven error is, by the way, added in the text. In other words, perseverance brings about character. You want a character change? By the way, if you don't, God's going to give it to you anyways. Yeah. You don't have a choice in that matter, Susie. So
2: hmm? Yeah, also, I yeah think and there's
0: also sometimes the experience, the tribulation gets greater. Where the Lord may not give us a greater that kind of great tribulation when we're first saved.
2: Okay. It's not. Oh, you are condemning me for my mind a
0: little about that. But isn't the sincerity character? It certainly is, in the sense that when I'm sincere, I test my own self by saying, "Am I actually looking at myself from the lens of God rather than the lens of my own heart?" You know, Paul says, he says, the man that measures himself by himself and compares himself with, with himself lacks understanding. See, the understanding of God permits us to actually view ourselves as of who we really are. That's what God does.
2: And
0: that's why James talks about it being a man who looks into a mirror and if he walks away, he forgets the image he saw. Why? That's the sinful Christian. That's the Christian that doesn't examine himself properly in light of the law of God, the word of God in the gospel. Right? So justification does prepare us for suffering. Philippians one twenty nine says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, by the way, that's justification, but also to suffer for him. The sad thing is we live in a day and age in the prosperity movement and, and the prosperity movement has even infiltrated to a certain degree, some of reformed camps. There's a reformed guy. Uh, his name is. Um, I heard him on TBN a couple of weeks ago. Stephen Furtick. Actually, um, he's pretty big now. He's, he's getting bigger too in terms of uh, his notoriety. Stephen Furtick said, "quote We do not thank God for the tribulation, but for the fruit of the tribulation." Is that true?
2: Could you repeat
0: we do not thank God for the tribulation, but we thank God for the fruit of that tribulation. Quickly, it sounds right. Is it theologically and doctrinally right? I don't
1: know.
0: Well, what does it say in this text? Rejoice in our sufferings. Rejoice in your sufferings. The NES says, Exalt in our tribulation. You know, Paul was able to rejoice in Philippians in all circumstances, in prosperity and also in want, for him to rejoice in the presence of God. The suffering brings about the character. You know what would happen. You know human nature. You know yourself. I know myself. You know what I love the most? Comfort and ease. I love my couch. And it loves you. I love my couch. You work 13 hours a day lifting 40 to 50 pound boxes like I do and Joyston does during the harvest. And for about half the day we're lifting those boxes. It's not just, oh, a quick 20 minutes and you're done. Lifting them all the time. You love your couch when you get home from doing that, right? Kenny, all the stress on the... Police work. I can't imagine the stress he goes with. And
1: that's true.
0: I'll guarantee Kenny loves something that creates ease and comfort and peace of mind, right? Something that says, oh, right? And then God comes along and says to you and I, He says, By the way, I'm gonna stir up the waters, as He did with His only begotten Son, when Jesus said he was troubled. Literally the Greek there is stirring up the waters. He's going to stir up the waters in your life and it's gonna give you a trial just like Christ went through. And then, by the way, your character's gonna change. But I like my couch, Lord. No. This is the way of God. Right? It's the way of God. So we exalt God for the tribulation. It's not just exalting him for the fruit. Because again, think of the consequences of saying, oh, we only exalt God for the fruit. Basically, the equivalency would be, I'm not, not going to exalt God for utilizing his sovereignty in a negative sense according to my own person. Right? But now you've fallen into the trap of I don't agree with God's sovereignty in every circumstance, and when He uses it, and it seems to cause harm to me, but actually He means it for good, I'm only going to praise Him when I get through. Right? We exalt in the whole God who brings good and ill, as the Old Testament says. He says, you know, He says, rejoice in the days of your prosperity, but consider that He is also the one who brings your adversity. He gives both. I mean think of it practically. Look how much of like a bouncing Super Bowl, you know, in a cement room, right? Four walls a Super Bowl, and it just go right. I don't think it's going make Super Bowls anymore, do they? And Laura say no. <laughs> Well, it's, it's a ball, Larissa, that is intended
2: <laughs>
0: to exert enough energy beyond actually the size of the ball, Mr. Engineer can tell you this, where it bounces greater than the average ball, its own size, with a different kind of density. <laughs>
2: Did
1: you write that down? No.
0: I couldn't repeat it if I wanted to. The idea is that we don't want our lives to be like that Super Bowl. In other words... I'm in tribulation right now. I'm just going to stop exalting God in tribulation until I can finally see the fruit of it. I'm just going to wait. Do we do that? No, we don't do that. In the midst of our sufferings, we get on our knees and we praise God. We wouldn't go to church half the time. Right? How many people come into this service every week with trouble on their shoulders? Every weight of encumbrance, as the Scripture says in the book of Hebrews. All these things are weighing us down. If we waited for the weight to be lifted off and to see fruit, we would never worship God. We wouldn't even probably drive the car to the church. Right? See, I think this is the subtlety of the prosperity movement entering into a reformed mindset. Because I think this guy claims to be reformed. And I only know that from the standpoint that I know a guy that went to college with him. This tribulation he's talking about here, literally and figuratively, figuratively is speaking about pressure, and anguish, burden, persecution, trouble. Which one fits you today? Right? Fits us all the time. Pressure. Got a stressful job, Kenny? Do you still worship the Lord while in your cruiser? And it's the toughest pressure job that you've had in the last five weeks. Right? You still worship the Lord. You're not waiting for the fruit. Rather than act the act of condemnation, see, I'm going to read my notes here. Uh, teaching us to suffer with Christ, preaching the same reconciling gospel of peace to others. I don't know what I'm going to do with that one there. <laughs> Rather than, the act, Okay. I better just keep doing what I'm doing here. My notes are kind of jumbled at that point. Is it correct to say Christ suffered for the sake of fulfilling his father's will and we are called to suffer for the sake of fulfilling the father's will in Christ? Is that a true statement? Absolutely. Therefore your suffering will resemble Christ. And if you are in the middle of your suffering and you can and this is what we need to do as Christians, Identify our suffering with the same suffering of Christ. Whether it's someone who's persecuting you, saying insults at you. Whether it's a uh, lower position in your job and workplace because they know you're a Christian and they didn't say it outright, but you know that's what happened. And you have a less responsible and paying, higher paying job. And we could give all kinds of different examples, couldn't we? But the idea, though, is do you see that you are suffering with Christ in this? And he su- his suffering was for his people as, you could say, the example of all suffering that would follow him? In fact, Paul even will teach, I think it's in the Corinthians, correct me if wrong, Gary, where we are actually filling up the very cup of suffering that was lacking in Christ. Colossians 1.20 Colossians I had to see right. <laughs> right? Imagine that! Now, it's it's not that Christ's suffering on the cross was insufficient. It's It's effective and effectual, many theologians refer to it as. It completed the exact amount of work that God intended through His Son. But, when you consider the doctrine of the church, my dear sister Larissa and I were talking about the church recently, one of the doctrines of the church is this that part of the role of the church is to fill up the sufferings of Christ as the very thing to which we'll judge the world. Christ judged the world and sin on the cross. You and I judge the world through enduring our suffering and still giving glory to God within it. And many of those sufferings resemble Christ almost to a T. Yeah?
2: Yeah? the difference between suffering just like worldly discomfort versus suffering for the sake of Christ. You know, because like mm-hmm. we are living in the world for mm-hmm. Christ and mm-hmm. Jesus said, the world hated me and therefore will hate you so why are you surprised when the world hates you? Mm-hmm. Versus, you know, I have a physical ailment and that that kind of suffering. And I mm-hmm. understand that both lead to sanctification. Mm-hmm. But, um, well, I think many Christians is he kind of encompassing all of both of those things in this passage in Romans where he says we rejoice in our suffering. Well, it's interesting.
0: I looked up suffering. He doesn't talk about suffering much more in the Book of Romans. On the other hand, I go back to what Christ taught on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five, because many Christians. Like to, it's kind of like the, the whole topic of evangelism. You know? In other words, um, well, I'm not a professional evangelist. I'm not going to Asia to, to evangelize, and therefore I guess I don't have the gift of evangelism, or I, I'll go in a different direction. In the same way, people say, well, you know, I'm not a martyr. I, you know, I'm not like someone who was over in Africa, and they, you know, the, the, the chief elder you know, was a pagan, and he, he killed uh, one of our Christian missionaries. And therefore, you know, I'm not suffering like him. Therefore, my suffering can't ever, ever compare to Christ. On the other hand, Jesus literally simple, simply says in Matthew 5 if anyone just simply insults you for Christ's sake. Was he not insulted? And yet he. And I, and I believe this is one of the biggest tests for all of us. He was a lamb led to the slaughter, a sheep before her shears, and he didn't open his mouth. You know, the hardest thing to do is not to open your mouth when you're getting insulted. And you have just identified in the sufferings of Christ when you say, I will not impatiently respond in an unholy manner. It comes down to that simple essence of what suffering is. It's not all grand. You know what I mean? All suffering doesn't have to be grand. You know, you don't have to be put on a cross uh, uh, in India or in a Muslim country and bleed like Christ to say, now I'm finally suffering with Christ. His sufferings were multifaceted, from the simplest to the grandest and the greatest. So I, I answer that question that way, Larissa. I mean, another way to look at it would be to doctrinally go into the scriptures and see where there are some comparisons with suffering and how they categorically line out to give us a fuller picture of what suffering is in the eyes of the epistles. But for the sake of the fact that we do exalt in our sufferings and our tribulations this is a very result of our justification you'd think because again you know the the old statement is you know if man wrote this Bible you wouldn't have a bloody sacrifice and then you wouldn't have suffering for the Christian who believed in the bloody sacrifice right you just wouldn't he would say oh by the way just simply believe and then by the way God's going to give you a perfect job a perfect wife perfect children a perfect life and then you're going to die with a smile on your face and then you're going to go to heaven that's what the Bible would be if man wrote it right? God says I'm going to save you and then your life is going to get tougher but recognize what he has accomplished in Christ first and then recognize what he's accomplished in you through Christ and you will live a life victorious you just will it's all about the gospel. It's all about what Christ did to give us the example of what a true godly life is. Follow Him. You know He said, "All you are weary and heavy laden, come unto Me." He says, "Right." He said, "Take My yoke upon, take y- put take My yoke and put it upon you, for My yoke is easy, My burden is light, and come and learn of Me." All we are, and I've said this to the unbelievers. As well as believers, they say, you know what? All we are is an extension of the disciples. We're all disciples of Christ, following our rabbi. That's what we're doing in life. We're following our rabbi. Well,
1: let me get back to her question. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. have you addressed it? Before? Well,
0: she—that's a big, specific question. Broad, I did it in one yeah, little nuance. She
1: specifically asking like the everyday sufferings that we go through in life with with physical troubles, you know, handicapped situations, and is that, is that suffering for Christ, or is well, it, would it be limited
2: to persecution? For
0: instance? Well, it's not limited to perse- persecution. It's broader than that from the standpoint that it's you living in the world for one who has a testimony of Christ and one who is living a life of Christ. And anything that's a response to that is suffering for Christ. On the other hand, Peter says, do not suffer for doing which is wrong, but for what is doing good, for this finds pleasure with God. Suffering for your sin is not suffering for God. That's the difference. That is a big theological difference. So the Christian does have to assess themselves and say, is this suffering brought about by me? Now here's the other dynamic behind that. You could sin, the ramifications of it are because of your sin, but the extension of it could be greater, and God could use that to test you further. So it's not an all-inclusive, you know, one big brush. This is the way it is, and that there's nuances even in between. But
2: we not admit that living
1: in America versus living in the Middle East, or in, even in the first century, when being a Christian was a minority, you were persecuted from the Jew, mm-hmm. from the Jews, you were persecuted from right. the even. I mean You got it from every side. We, in a sense, have it easy in
0: comparison. Oh, I agree. So, I don't
1: know if there's a whole lot of suffering from Christ going on. Well, we, we have, you can, I,
0: the way I word it is, we have more subtle sufferings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and That's why I use the example that I gave to Larissa. On the other hand, I'm seeing it very, very quickly. Very quickly. <coughs> and you're going to see it, sister, because I'm a lot older than you. Um, you're you're going to see it where. The, the suffering has gone greater because you are a Christian. You have a testimony of truth. And as soon as you use the word truth, you're saying, by the way, it is unique and it's, it's relegated to God and Him alone, and you're wrong. It's basically when you're t- preaching the gospel. Jesus said, on the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, right? We all know that text. Just say that to the world, and they know exactly how to take it. And you are. Larissa, the dear sister I love, is non-inclusive. Right? I'm just using the terminology. This is leading to a great persecution, in my opinion. Now, I'm not a prophet. But it's just logical to where we're headed, where we will experience a greater degree <coughs> of persecution. Then the next question is, I know we're off target here, but we're just about done anyway. Then the next question is, is our constitution strong enough to protect us in our religious liberties, right? And when culture changes, laws change. So the jury is out on that. But I always—I asked my boss one time. We were talking about um, my retirement benefits. Could they ever take them away? He says, "Well, you know," he says, "my uncle is a lawyer for the state of Connecticut." My uncle said to me, all you need is one good judge and one good lawyer. And he says, evidence changed for my whole return. That's all that needs to happen for the Christian. So by the way, Christian, by the way, Larissa, are you preparing yourself for exalting in the tribulation that God has prepared for you in your lifetime? And it may get greater, right? For all of us. <coughs> All right, let's finish with prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you, O Lord, for your love that supersedes any trouble within this world and any tribulation that we experience. May you give us the spiritual mindset, O Lord, that looks and says, I am suffering with Christ because he called me to this. And this is a great, great calling. It is a privilege to suffer with Christ. It is a privilege to be a Christian in the name of Christ. Oh Lord, guide us, O oh Lord, in the worship service ahead. Guide us, O oh Lord, with the thoughts of this study that bring about the blessings we have and our saving faith that you granted to us, O Lord. You gave us the faith to believe. And this is how much of a gift of the grace of God is. And you justified, O oh Lord, and you justified us so that we are no longer guilty in the presence of a holy God. And let this Go deeply down within our hearts and our souls that we would lift up our praises to You as the exalted One and whom You are.
2: And we thank and praise Your holy name. Amen.